Hey folks, this is Jesse Cope, back with another episode of the American Soul Podcast. Hope y'all are doing well, wherever y'all are, whatever y'all are up to today. Whether you're doing laundry or dishes at home, or vacuuming, or working in the garden, or driving up and down the road, conference period, lunch break, getting ready in the morning, or going to sleep in the evening. Hopefully not that this puts you asleep, but I sure do appreciate y'all joining me, giving me a little bit of your time. I will try to use it wisely. And for those of y'all that continue to share the podcast and to help it to grow, as it seems to keep doing, thank you so much. I'm incredibly humbled and grateful for it. And I guess that's about it. I'm going to get going. Take one of our little walks today. I uh, had two puppy dogs. They have gone elsewhere, I think, to get away from the heat. The sound of the cicadas in the background. My wife always says, that's how you know it's really hot when you hear them. And you can definitely hear them these days. We're going to... <clears throat> I don't think I have anything else about... I was trying to think about the garden real quick. This has not been my most productive day so far, but we'll see if we can turn that around a little bit here. We're going to talk about John Jay, who was one of our preeminent founders. And really what I'm going to do, I'm, I'm, I'm going to read a quote from him that really caught my attention. I'm reading a biography that I've shared a little bit with you all here before. But I'm read, read a couple excerpts from the book that this author put in. This is the J. Defender of Liberty, uh, written sometime in the 1930s, maybe 35. And the author is Frank Monaghan, I believe. It's not the most well-written, in my opinion. Not that I'm an expert. Uh, but it gives a lot of little tidbits of information here and there. Uh, and this is one of them. With a couple excerpts, and then I'll read you the part from John Jay that really caught my attention, kind of tied it all together. So this is 1774, and talking about the colonists and, and their opinions of things, particularly some of the colonists up in, in New York, their opinion of how things were going in the colonies. And this was one of the, well, I'll just read this. Turning to Holt's New York Journal for the same day, a colonist could have found a letter from London describing how infamously Dr. Franklin had been treated and advising that the colony should therefore be more particularly attentive in cultivating union and harmony among themselves. Another article quoted a Brutus who had written in the London Evening Post, by all appearances we are on the eve of a civil war. Englishmen, therefore, instead of assisting towards enslaving their American fellow subjects, will make their cause their own and with all their power support them in their rights and liberties. For whilst our colonies preserve their freedom, 
Englishmen cannot be enslaved at home. The idea was that at this point in 1774, the, and there were other examples the author put in here, the colonists were getting a pretty heavy dose of there's trouble in the water uh, from all of the different articles that they were reading. And these were some that the colonists, as the author said here, would really have agreed with. It would have resonated with them. Because at this point, the vast majority uh, didn't want independence. And they just wanted to be treated lawfully by Parliament and the king. That's what they felt. Um, so, at any rate, we'll go on. I'll tie this all in together, I think, folks. The substantial citizens of New York, while they favored an orderly protest against what they deemed the repressive measures of Parliament directed against colonial trade, had no desire to witness those scenes of violent disorder which had occurred in the other colonies. New York had been relatively quiet since the Stamp Act troubles. Meanwhile, Massachusetts had witnessed its Boston Massacre in 1770 and its Pembroke Resolves in 1772, the year in which Rhode Island saw the burning of the Gaspi. The New Yorkers, more lethargic than their northern neighbors, were not greatly alarmed until in 1773 Parliament granted to the English East India Company the monopoly of the sale of tea in the colonies. This was a stunning blow to hundreds of colonial merchants. Values of their stocks of tea sank and prospective profits vanished. This act of Parliament simply eliminated the American middlemen and enabled the company to sell tea through its own agencies directly to the consumers. Not merely did it affect those merchants who had already bought large supplies of tea from the company, but it struck a devastating blow at those merchants who smuggled their stocks from Holland, for the company could afford to undersell them both. The tea merchants were those who were immediately affected, but others quickly took alarm. What was there to prevent this practice from being extended to other fields? If so, cried a New York merchant, have we a single chance of being anything but hewers of wood and drawers of water to them. That last line is great, folks. If you're not familiar with it, it comes uh, multiple times in the Old Testament where uh, describing a slave from one person to another or one state to another, they would be described as hewers of wood uh, or, I just lost my place, sorry, or drawers of water, meaning that they were going to be subject to this kind of menial labor. And so this comment by this New York merchant is, is saying, you know, if they can if they can make these decisions about tea, what's to keep them from making these decisions about anything else? And really the interesting thing here to me, uh, I, I heard you hear this in Patrick Henry's Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death speech when he's talking about the fact that Virginia is just sitting there while there's already a war afoot up in in Boston. And uh, I've heard, I think John Adams also make a similar comment, although I can't pull the quote to mind right now. But if if your liberties aren't safe in one part of the country, folks, why do we insist 
and thinking completely falsely that that they're going to be safe in the rest of the country meaning if we have a situation in new york or california or florida or wherever and liberties are being stripped from american citizens in one of those places particularly when it's done by the federal government why why would we think that it would be too long i said particularly by the federal government folks but but also by state governments at this point today. Why would we think it would be that long before we would be stripped of, of other rights or that we in a different state would be stripped of those rights and even more? The abortion debate comes to mind immediately. You know, Roe v. Wade was overturned and that was a major win in a battle at, at a battle level, but it wasn't the war folks because all that did was push it back to the states. And so now you can say, well, uh, Texas or Arkansas or Florida or, or North Dakota, South Dakota, they're going to make it illegal to murder a child, as it should be. But then you're going to have a place like Illinois or California or pick your state, uh, New York, Massachusetts. They're going to say, well, you can still come here. If a child doesn't have a right to life in one state, how long do we really think it's going to be until that's pushed again over other states? If you can still take life, which is the first inalienable right out of the Declaration of Independence, if you can take that away at will, how long do we really think it's going to be until that's stretched to, to, to take away our right to life? And maybe at a different stage in life, you know, until the elderly, until some state decides, well, you know, these elderly people, they're really a drain on the system. We we really don't want them around and they're really not useful at all. So we're just going to go ahead and get rid of them. And and does this not strike us as just a more dressed up version of what the Nazis did with the Jews? Well, those people, they're they're unwanted. They're the deplorables. They're the they're the bad parts of society. So we're just going to go ahead and get rid of them. And then going back to this biography on John Jay, the author, as the, as the protests got more violent, Jay disapproved of these violent protests. But at this particular time, he was more concerned with his approaching marriage. He was about to get married in 1774. Few people seriously considered the possibility of war with Great Britain. Were not these protests of the colonists designed to reassert and maintain the sacred rights of Englishmen? Jay was not disturbed. This was before John Jay really got uh, involved in politics. Let's go ahead and read the rest of this. Jay was not disturbed. He had been but little interested in the politics of the province. And neither he nor his immediate family was directly touched by the company monopoly. In the month of April 1774, much pleased with his share of the attentions of providence, of God, he looked forward to a happy domestic life, to the fulfillment of the early promise of his legal career, and to a judgeship in the inferior court of common pleas. Yet within a month, circumstances were to launch him into politics and statecraft. Within a year, the moot, the social club, and the dancing assemblies that he had been a part of as a younger man were to disappear. 
The turbulent years that followed sent many of his friends into unwelcome exile and made him a patriot leader in a great civil war. Years later, in letters to old friends, he wistfully evoked memories of the Halicon days of their youth. A recollection, Van Schack replied, one of his friends from youth, of those happy scenes of our clubs, our moots, and our Broadway evenings fills me with pleasing, melancholy reflections. Fumus Taurus Fut Ilium, if I said that right, it's, it's Latin, it's translated, we used to be Trojans, there once was a Troy. I read this little bit, folks, because I think there's so many of us, and I talk about this on a podcast, for those of y'all that listen frequently, you know quite often, I think we have a, a war coming here, because... You know, President Coolidge said, I was talking just just this morning uh, with someone about this, and uh, Coolidge said that if we don't have those core values, that the republic will cease to exist, and we don't have these, this shared group of core values. We don't have to agree on everything. Y- y'all are not going to agree with everything that I say on this podcast, not even to mention the fact that I'm going to make some mistakes. And, and when you let me know about those, then I'll correct them. Um, I'm definitely not perfect, as I say. I can point you to the one man that was, the only man that ever was, Jesus Christ. But we're not going to agree on everything, but we have to have a, a core set, a foundational set of values that hold us together as a nation. And then we can disagree on all the lesser issues. The problem today, folks, is we don't have that core set anymore. We don't have those foundational. We have a, a significant minority, growing, some would argue, of, of American citizens that hate and have for decades. This has been building for decades, folks. This is not, this is not a problem that's cropped up because Trump is no longer president or because Biden is president. If anything, we're just seeing what has been laying underneath for a while. These people that, that truly despise America, because you can't love America if you don't love her founding principles. We're going to do a, a little podcast series in a couple weeks from now, maybe, maybe sooner. We'll see. But on this, on, on what those, those core values are, what it really means to love America. I can't help but think here too, folks, that about about Noah and and the flood and and God, the, the words out of the Bible talking about how people were, you know, they were dancing and partying and having a great time and and they were given in marriage and being given in marriage and and it was just everything was great right up until the very day of the flood and. Uh, this same gentleman that I was talking to earlier made this comment. I, I'm going to paraphrase because I can't remember his exact words, but it was it was spot on. And he he said, you know, we don't we don't want to look at these issues. We've turned away from them for so long. We don't want to deal with them. Um, we we just want to kind of pretend that it's not going on. And I, I did a horrible job paraphrasing there. <laughs> If nothing else, it'll make, make this man laugh when he listens to it. But 
the point is we have ignored our real issues for so long and we've put so much focus. We talk about this so often, folks. If we don't have 30 minutes a day for God and for our spouse, then we have no, you know, or pick whatever time you want to. But if we don't have a dedicated amount of time to spend with God, to read his word, to pray and to love on our spouse, then, then why? We have no right to look up in shock surprise when our faith is weak and our marriage is falling apart. You know, you look at our education system today in a lot of places and how much effort we put into really unimportant matters. Uh, athletics is huge. That probably comes up first. Yeah, there's a lot of things that you can, that young people can learn that's really good in athletics, character and the ability to, you know, work through pain and teamwork and courage and work ethic. But, but there's a limit. There's a point of diminishing return when, when the whole focus becomes uh, winning as opposed to lessons learned. And we put all this inordinate time and money and effort into that, you know, or, or what about the subjects that we're teaching our children? Or are we even teaching them? Are we just putting an iPad or an iPhone in front of them and letting them watch or read, you know, pick books instead of electronics, letting them do whatever they want? And we're not really putting any effort into them. And then they grow up to be these these really bratty, dysfunctional members of society or even worse, what we see so much today, uh, people in society that are undermining society, helping to undermine it. Why are we surprised? Why do we pretend to be shocked? We helped that along. And so when I read this here, this recollection of John Jay with his friend about these great times, I think this particular friend was one that ended up being exiled over to England, if I'm not mistaken. You know, they were looking back and thinking, oh, how wonderful these times were. You know, even John Jay, we're not really going to be in a war. And then all of a sudden they were. You know, and, and it happened in just a matter of a month, a year. This is a quote from John Jay. Uh, he wrote 35 years after the war, he wrote that it has always been and still is my opinion and belief that our country was prompted and impelled to independence by necessity and not by choice. In New York City on the evening of the same day, General Washington and his troops, this is this is 1776. Now I jump forward. This is. Uh, in July, when the Declaration of Independence was passed, George Washington had his troops drawn up and the Declaration of Independence was read at the head of each brigade. Then they sang part of the 80th Psalm and gave three cheers. Meanwhile, a crowd pulled down and beheaded the equestrian statue of George III so that the royal troops might have melted majesty fired at them. The last part, um, the very last part I just thought was kind of interesting, but, you know, even... 35 years after the war, John Jay said, we didn't choose this. We didn't want this. We wanted to be reconciled with Britain. But when you have evil, there was no choice but to separate. You, you can't reconcile and coexist. And we go through this list of about six or seven core values frequently, folks. But the push for socialism, communism, before all of these, the rejection of God out of our institutions, uh, abortion, taking away the basic fundamental right to life from individuals, LGBTQ, the, the feminist movement that's destroying our marriages and families, critical race theory, uh, affirmative action, the, the bigotry, revisionist history that we see pushed on our kids in both culture and education, 
illegal immigration flooding the country with tens of millions of criminals and terrorists over the last 50, 60 years, right? Somewhere in there. All of these things, folks, these, these aren't issues where you compromise on. These aren't gray. These are very black and white issues. Though we have to have this core set of beliefs, and if we don't have those, then everything else falls apart. I'll read one more, and then I'll leave you all alone for today. This is a quote uh, out of the Founder's Bible, which I recommend very much. The biography on John Jay, not so much. I don't think I would spend money on that. <laughs> but the Founder's Bible, as well as the Patriot's Bible and the American Gun Country Encyclopedia quotes, those three books, I would find the money to spend on, folks. For example, General Nathaniel Green testified from his own experiences during the revolution that it was obvious that the liberties of America are the object of divine protection, talking about God. George Washington agreed, telling General Thomas Nelson that the hand of providence has been so conspicuous in all this that he must be worse than an infidel that lacks faith and more than wicked that has not the gratitude enough to acknowledge his obligations. According to Washington, the hand of God had been so apparent that if someone had seen what so frequently occurred during the revolution and did not feel an obligation to thank God and show gratitude for all he had done on America's behalf, that person was simply wicked. Strong sentiments, but so too was Washington's conviction that America's liberties had been under the watchful eye of God. I end with this, folks, today because we are a Christian republic. We talk about this on every podcast. It's acknowledged again and again and again. Here you see Washington himself talking, and he wasn't talking about Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism or atheism or Mother Nature. He was talking about God the Father, Jesus Christ, folks. We see Washington saying that people that wouldn't acknowledge God's hand were worse than infidels. They're just simply wicked people. And we have that today, folks. And you tie that in with these comments from that biography on John Jay. We're looking a civil war right in the face. Folks, are there other options? Yeah. We could keep going down the path silently. We could remain the, quote, silent majority, if that is even still true, and continue on the path toward USSR Russia or uh, Maoist China or Nazi Germany. Sure, we could. Or there's the slight possibility that we could, as I was reminded earlier, we have had some, some victories at the ballot box recently. We could miraculously with God's help turn this thing around. I, I don't see those two, but I would love for the miraculous without a fight, not going to the USSR, turning it around at the ballot box to be true. But the point is, regardless of what's coming, if we have any hope, ballot box or war or anything else of turning us around, we've got to get back to God. And we've got to open our eyes and see what's before us and, and quit sticking our, hand, our head in the sand like the ostrich, right? So just food for thought today. I sure do appreciate y'all joining me. I'm sorry I ran a little over here, but uh, thank y'all for sticking with me. Hope y'all got something out of it. And uh, God bless y'all. God bless your families. God bless America. We'll talk to y'all again real soon. Looking forward to it.